everyone. You know how you search for biblical justification sometimes to tell you what you want to hear? I hate camping. And this is my story for why I don't have to go camping, because tent pegs are dangerous. Uh, let's pray we learn more than that from God's Word tonight. Uh, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Judges uh, and that we've been learning so much from over recent weeks. We thank you for the encouragements we've had. We thank you for the challenges we've had. And we pray that it will do the same again for us tonight, that it will encourage us and challenge us in equal measure. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, our family's been reading through a book at dinner time together this year. Uh, it's uh, not every night because you've got to have everyone there at the table. We've been reading this book. It's called Everyone a Child Should Know. Uh, and uh, Sophie got it for Christmas last year. And what it is, is uh, 52 stories of different Christian men and women who have done uh, incredible things because they trusted in Jesus, basically. Uh, stories of faith. And uh, it's been really encouraging for us. So, uh, in fact, on the night Billy Graham died, uh, we read about Billy Graham in this book. And I can't remember if I did that on purpose or if we just came to it on that. It sounds better if we came to it on that night, but I, I can't admit, I don't know that for sure. But stories of people like uh, William Carey, have you ever heard of William Carey, who uh, left the comfort of England a few hundred years ago to go to India, where he knew he would die eventually, uh, and he shared the gospel with so many people that you lose count. Uh, uh, Elizabeth Elliot, do you want to know her story? Went as a missionary with her husband to South America, up the Amazon River, and the tribesmen there killed her husband. Uh, and then she went back to the same tribes people to share the gospel with them and offer them the forgiveness they could find in Jesus. That is incredible, isn't it? You know, that is faith. That is trusting God and His promises. And it's only faith in Jesus would make someone do something like that. Uh, but there's something about reading these, these great stories of Christian heroes, and you mightn't want to get the children's version, you might want to get an adult version, but there's something about uh, reading these great stories of Christian heroes that strengthens your own faith, isn't there? That just sort of makes you say, yes, it is worth following Jesus. Yes, whatever uh, costs I have to count to follow Jesus are worth it when you read the, these people who have given up their lives for Jesus and who trust Jesus uh, against all the odds. Uh, but you don't have to buy that book, though I recommend it, uh, because we have heroes of the faith and their stories for us in Hebrews 11. So turn to your New Testament reading tonight, and we only read like a little brief snapshot of it, but that's what Hebrews 11 is in the New Testament. It says, here are all these people from the Old Testament who are heroes of the faith for us, and it reminds us of people like Abraham and Moses and Rahab, men and women who, who did incredible things because they trusted God. Uh, but the thing that always strikes me as I read through Hebrews 11 is how, for a story of how these people are heroes, they're incredibly flawed. And that's the thing with all the Old Testament heroes. I hope you've noticed as you read your Bible. I mean, Abraham. You, you know the story of Abraham, don't you? I mean, how many times did Abraham doubt God? And how many times did he put his wife Sarah in terrible positions because of his doubts and yet in the end he trusted God and he trusted God's promises and he's recorded for us as a hero of the faith or Moses you know the story of Moses what did Moses do when God said I want you to go and lead my people out of slavery in Egypt what did Moses say to God you've got the wrong guy surely there's someone better than me you've got to get my brother I've got, I've got a stutter 
I, I couldn't possibly speak to Pharaoh, get Aaron to do it instead. And yet in the end, Moses trusted God and his promises, and he is a hero of the faith. And it just shows us, as you go through all these heroes, it just shows us that faithfulness is not being perfect. Faithfulness is different to being perfect. And being faithful doesn't mean that you don't struggle at times. And it doesn't mean in particular that you don't struggle at times to trust God and his promises. The heroes of the faith are all deeply flawed. But despite their flaws, they trusted God. And so today we're looking at probably the least known of the heroes of the faith mentioned in Hebrews 11. You might have even missed it as Rachel read his name. And his name is Barak. He's become more well-known in recent years because he shares his name with someone else. Uh, But he's just there in this list of names of people who by faith conquered kings and put foreign armies to flight. And so as we look at this story together in Judges 4 and 5, you actually already know the main lesson you're meant to draw from it, right up front, because Hebrews 11 has told us. It's meant to encourage you in your faith. You're meant to look at Barak and say, I want to trust Jesus like he trusted God and his promises, but also it should encourage you in your weakness to keep the faith, to keep trusting God, because Barak's story is a story of weakness as much as it's a story of faith. So now, turn back in your Old Testament, turn to Judges chapters 4 and 5, it's our first reading from before, I've got to find it myself, Judges chapter 4, and sadly it starts with a verse we've got very used to, look at verse 1, It says, the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. Now, if you've been with us for all the weeks of the book of Judges, if you've been reading, you know that is like the action replay of every other story in the book of Judges. This cycle we've seen over and over again. Remember, Ehud was the judge who had just saved them. God had given them this long period of blessing, of rest. And what happens is the same thing that happened all through Israel's history. After a while, as things were good, they said, who needs God? And they stop worshipping God and they start worshipping idols. And so just like every other time that happens, eventually God has enough and God judges them. And this time he hands them over to a Canaanite king called Jabin who oppresses them. And there really is no hope for the Israelites in this because Jabin has like the military genius of his age, a guy called Sisera, and Sisera has 900 chariots. And we've seen this problem before, do you remember back a few chapters ago, how Judah couldn't take the land that they wanted to take? Why? Because the other people had chariots and they didn't. So at this time, all of the northern tribes of Israel are oppressed and they're left cowering and sort of hiding up in the hills. We only read chapter 4 before, but jump over to chapter 5, flick over to chapter 5, And I want you to read chapter 5 before you go to bed tonight, after church, okay? Or maybe in the morning. Uh, Because what it is, is it's the poem or the song that they wrote afterwards. So chapter 4 is like the facts of the story, and then chapter 5 is the victory song they wrote after God gave them the victory. But in that song, it tells you how awful it was under Jabin and under Sisera. It, It says they had to abandon their villages, So basically, if you had gone to the north of Israel at that time, you'd go and it'd just be ghost town because they had to go and hide up in the mountains. And it says it wasn't safe to travel on the roads because if you were an Israelite, they would have attacked you on the road. So they were really horribly oppressed. But eventually, they remember God and they cry out to Him. 
And once again, God answers them, but in a really unusual way. Every other time in this book, what has God done when they've called out for him? Who is the type of person God has raised up? Every other time in the book, it has been some crazy guy with a crazy weapon. Basically, that's what it's been. It, the, the judge, we, we hear the word judges and we think, you know, a guy sitting on a bench who decides whether you stole something from someone else and what, what the punishment should be and all that sort of thing. The judges actually were military conquerors. So the men he raised up were men like Ehud, who had the special sword, you know, the left-handed, I did the wrong hand, the left-handed guy, or, or people who, who kill people with their, their tools they use, you know, you know, this sort of thing. These military heroes, but who does God raise up this time? He raises up Deborah. Now, straight away, that confounds people's expectations. I mean, it's a woman, first of all, and that is unusual. It's unusual in the Bible, it's unusual in the world, especially of that time. Uh, but more than that, as I say, she was more like we would think of as a judge. She didn't go and fight. She sat under a tree and people came to her to receive wisdom. And she was a prophetess. She got words from the Lord to share. Uh, and Deborah knew that unlike the other judges, it wasn't her job to lead Israel into war. So she was different to Ehud, she was different to Othniel, she's different to Samson. So she calls Barak. Now Barak is from the tribe of Naphtali. Now they were the tribe who were being oppressed more than anyone else. And it seems Barak had already had instructions from the Lord. He wasn't unknown, he was a general, uh, he, he had like a militia force. But Deborah summons him and reminds him of what God had told him to do. It seems like Barak already knew he was meant to get into a fight, but he wasn't that keen on doing it. And so she says, come on, Barak. She says, you've got 10,000 men from your tribe and the neighbouring tribe of Zebulun, and God has already told you, go to Mount Tabor and wait there, and then God will sort out Sisera and his chariots for you. So look at verse 7. It says, this is God speaking through Deborah, then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's forces, his chariots and his army at the Wadi Kishon to fight against you and I will hand him over to you. Now, if we just pause there, I think it's really important to see how God works in these promises here, okay? God doesn't say, hey, Barak, go and fight and do your best and you might win. That's not what God says to him. No, God promises the victory to Barak. But he also doesn't say, hey, Barak, I'm giving you the victory and it doesn't matter what you do. Do you notice that? There's no, if you remember from a few weeks ago, there's no let go and let God here for Barak. Now, the way God will give the victory is through the faithfulness of Barak. You see, Barak has to go and fight. But in doing that, he has to trust that God will give the victory. And for us, it's the same. I think it's a parallel to us. God gives us the victory in Jesus. We are forgiven and know that we have a place in His kingdom. And so God says, trust me. Have faith. Believe me. But God doesn't then say, so now, sit back and watch me. Just do it for you. He says, now you fight the good fight. He says, put on the armour of faith, devote yourself to prayer, commit yourself to the fellowship of God's people because that's how I will work in you and that's how I'll work through you and that's how I'll help you persevere to the end. See, it's not let go and let God, it's fight the fight 
trusting that God has and will give you the victory. But back to Barak, because here is where we see the weakness of Barak. Look at verse 8. Barak said to her, if you'll go with me, I'll go. But if you'll not go with me, I will not go. Do you remember when you were a little kid and your parents asked you to do something you were uncomfortable about? And what would you do? You'd say, no, you do it. That's Moses. Or, like Barak, you'd say, I'll do it if you come with me. Barak is like a little boy here. And Deborah treats him like a little boy. Now, you see, Barak could have... There might be all sorts of good reasons why Barak didn't want to go without Deborah going with him. You know, it might be hey, you're the prophetess, what if I need new instructions during the battle? I need you there to help me. Or I'm not a leader, I'm just a, you know, ruffian from the north sort of thing. You know, I I need a leader like you. But Deborah sees it as a negative. She sees this as a failure by Barak to trust God. He should have trusted God enough. God has said, I'll give you the victory. That should have been enough for Barak to say, all right, I'll go, I'll do it. And to put it frankly, I think Deborah seems to be saying to him, by what she says next, really, you should have been more of a man, Barak. You should have been man enough to go. Man enough to not ask a godly woman to have to come into the battlefield with you. It was actually wrong of him to do this. And so Deborah says, look at verse 9. She says, I will go with you, but you will receive no honour on the road you're about to take, because the Lord will sell Sisera into a woman's hand. I'll come, and we're still going to win, because God will give us the victory, but Barak, you will not receive the honour you thought you would for fighting this battle. See, it will be a woman who defeats Sisera, not you. And in that culture, that would have been a massive loss of face for Barak. And so they go, and we come to the battle, come to verses 10 to 17, that's where the battle is. Barak and Deborah go to Kedesh, with their 10,000 men, which sounds a lot, until Sisera comes with all the armies of all the nations of the Canaanites. You can't even count how many men it would have been. And the clincher, 900 chariots. Humanly speaking, this is hopeless. Barak has no hope. There is no hope for him. There's no hope for Israel. But this time, at last, Barak does not hesitate. Deborah gives him his instructions. Look at verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, Move on, for this is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. You have to understand, that was suicide for Barak. Because up in the mountain, up on Mount Tabor, the chariots couldn't find him. They couldn't get to him. But as soon as he walks down onto that plain, he is marching his 10,000 men to their death. Because the 900 chariots would just go round and round and shoot them and kill them and it would all be over. But there is no hesitation now for Barak. He says, well, if that's what it is, that's what it is. But God has promised the victory and he marches into battle. And what does God do? Look at verses 15 and 16. The Lord threw Sisera, all his charioteers and all his army into confusion with the sword before Barak. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth of the nations, and the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a single man was left. We're not told how God did it. We're not told how God throws them into confusion here. But if you read the victory poem in chapter 5, before bed tonight, remember, later on at verse 21, it seems like 
God brought a thunderstorm or, or some sudden flow of water down this dry river that somehow washed the chariots away or got them stuck in the mud, we don't really know. But whatever happened, suddenly the chariots were useless and the people got scared and Barak's 10,000 men came through and killed them all. And however it happened, on the one hand, it can say, God won the victory. God gave you the victory that day. But then on the other, it can say, Barak won the victory because he acted in faith. He trusted in God's promises enough to take up the fight. And that's why Barak is a hero of the faith. But there was a problem. What was the problem? Sisera got away. And to really get the glory, Barak needed to literally bring Sisera's head back. And this is where Heber the Kenite pops into the story. I used to be on the Kenites team on a beach mission I went through. This is where it comes from, you know, the, not just from keen leaders or something. Anyway, uh, now, do you, you know how you're reading your Old Testament, you come across and just there in this sort of random verse, it tells you about Heber the Kenite living under a tree. And you think, why is that there? It's always there for a reason. And the reason comes up later on. You see, the Kenites were foreigners who were allowed to live amongst the people of Israel. And in particular, down in the south with the tribe of Judah. But it seems like Heber was a turncoat. Heber had gone over to the Canaanites. He was serving Jabin, the foreign king. And so when Sisera gets to his camp, exhausted, with Barak chasing him, he says, here's hope. This guy's on our side. He's going to help us. And he asks for water, but Jael, Heber's wife, does much more than that for him. She offers him safety. By welcoming someone into your tent, you're saying, I'm not going to let anyone harm you. It's incredibly shameful in that culture to let harm come to someone under your roof. And when he asks for water, she gives him milk. It would have been like those yogurt drinks, you know, you get at the Lebanese pizza places. You know, it was a prized drink that, that she was giving him, something that, that, that was costly. It was a generous thing to give. And so... It would have been horrible for her to allow harm to come to this man who she had offered hospitality to. But Jael does more than allow harm to come to Sisera. She lets him fall asleep. And then, this is why I don't go camping. <laughs> she took a tent peg and she hammered it through his skull and pinned him to the ground. Why do people go to the movies when you can read the book of Judges? Anyway. Now, at that point, I want to say, Jael is not meant to be a positive example to us, just in case you're wondering. We're not meant to learn the lesson of Jael, be vigilante murderers of tyrants. You, you, you know, that, that, that is not the thing. In some senses, what she did was ungodly, and it doesn't actually make comment on it one way or the other. You know, perhaps, you know, you could think through it, or should she have just tied him up? and let it left him for Barak so that he could face a, a, a court. But, but there are moral ambiguities in times of war. That's just a reality. So there's no comment on her actions here. It's not held out as an example to us. But then you get to chapter 5, and there is one thing that is held as a positive example. It's the fact that she was saying, I am with God. Whether she did it right or not, she was saying, my husband has made a choice to back the followers of Baal, to back the pagans, I am with Yahweh, I am with the Israelites, I am with the one true God and with His people. Whether the way she showed it or not was right, was right or not, it's amazing how God uses sinful people 
even in our sin, to work for his good and the good of his people. Made me think of the number of times I've seen, in particular, young men become Christians from totally non-Christian backgrounds. And, and part of that is, you know, they drink too much and they swear too much and they haven't sorted that out yet. But they've come to know Jesus and they say, I'm with Jesus. And I've sat with so many over the years where they're explaining to the, gospel, the gospel to their friends and every second word's a swear word. And you're sort of sitting there going, I wish you wouldn't swear. They, they'll sort that out in time. God will sanctify them. But at this early point, they've worked out people need to hear about Jesus. And that's the most important thing. And it's a bit like that with Jael. She was a hero to the people of Israel, whether she did it right or not. And so you get this great end of the story where Barak catches up with Sisera at Jael's tent. And Jael says, come and I'll show you the man you're looking for. And Barak's thinking, great. She's obviously got him tied up in the tent. And he gets in there and he's already dead. And that is the point because Deborah had said, you won't get the glory, it'll go to a woman. And everyone thought she meant her, but actually it was this ungodly foreign woman who killed the enemy. Well, what do we learn from this great story? Well, I hope we've learned little things as we've gone through, but I want to draw three quick final lessons. I've put them there on your outline. The first lesson is about faith. Because in the end, that is what Barak is commended for, that is what he is held up as an example of, faith. And like Barak, if you want to be like Barak, we need to be people of faith. And that means trusting in the promises of God. We need to live as people who know that Christ has died for our sins. We need to live as people who know that Christ is risen from the dead. We need to live as people who know and believe that this world is not all there is, that we are looking forward to something better. And we need to live as people who know that one day Christ will return to judge. That is what we believe and that's what we trust in. So live as people of faith like Barak. That's the first lesson here. But Barak's story also helps us to see that even heroes of the faith have doubts, like I said before. Barak was overly cautious. Barak was slow to trust God. Barak doubted that God would say what he said he could do. He needed Deborah to hold his hand. But when push came to shove, despite all his doubts and despite all his struggles, he trusted God and acted on it. And so even if he didn't receive the glory then, even if it went to JL then, Hebrews 11 says, for us, he is a hero. He is a hero of the faith. And I think that makes him a wonderful, real model for us. Because the Christian life, trusting God always, is not easy. And you will face times where you struggle to believe that God is really working for your good in all things. And when life doesn't go right, you will struggle to believe, is God really good? Trusting God, faith, is not the easy option. But the question in those circumstances is not, how strong is your faith? It's, will you, like Barak, in the end, when push comes to shove, say, I'm with Jesus? That's what it is to believe, and that's what it is to be saved. When push comes to shove, I trust God and His promises. The second lesson is actually from chapter 5. I'm going to give you a head start on your reading. Uh, so flick there now. When God gives the victory, what do God's people do? Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang. And then verse 3, Listen, kings, pay attention, princes, 
I will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Christians sing. When you get that God has saved you in Christ, what must be our response? It must be to praise Him. What is the mark of Christians? More than anything else, it is joy. It is singing God's praises. Other religions don't do that. I was talking to someone after the 8.30 service this morning, after we looked at this passage together, and he said, I was in Indonesia lately, and he has Muslim family over there, and he said, their religion is legalism. They're, they have to pray five times a day, and there is no joy. And he said, one Sunday we were sitting there, and everyone's ears pricked up, and they said, what's that noise? And it was Christians in the house next door singing God's praises. A little house church, probably illegal, who knows? You see, when you know that God loves you enough to send His Son to die for you, you sing. You sing His praises. That's why I love it when I hear people singing songs about what God has done for us. That's why I'm sometimes sad when I look around and see some people not singing. Because I sort of want to go and say to you, why don't you want to sing? Do you know Jesus? Do you know the God who saves? Do you trust Him and know what He's done for you? Then do not stand silent, declare His praises and sing. Don't worry about whether you're a good singer or not. You notice there it doesn't say, on that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang because they were very tuneful people. <laughs> you don't know whether they could sing. They sang because they knew the God who saves and they wanted to declare His praises. The third lesson and last lesson is again from the song in chapter 5. This whole song is rejoicing in the fact that God didn't just sort of bring His victory out of nowhere. He brought it through the faithfulness of faithful people like Barak and Deborah. You see, they don't just praise God for the victory, they praise God that He used His people to bring about the victory. Look at verse 2. It says, when the leaders lead in Israel, when the people volunteer, praise the Lord. You see, when you read this song later, it actually goes through all the people who stepped up and were counted, who said, Barak's going to fight for us, I'm joining in. And it goes through all these tribes and says, praise God for them, because they didn't just sit back and wait, they joined in. So what pleases God? When His leaders lead. If you have a position of leadership, then lead how God wants you to lead. Follow Christ's example. That's what pleases God. Husbands, do you want to please God? Lead your family spiritually by loving them and serving them like Christ loved the church. If you happen to be a parent or get the opportunity to be a parent, lead your children to know Jesus. That is the job God has given you and that pleases Him. Teachers, whether you are a preacher or a scripture teacher or a kids church leader or a youth group leader or whatever you are, lead, teach God's Word faithfully. Love those God has entrusted to you. That is what pleases God. And everyone, whether you're a leader or not, do you want to please God? Well, volunteer for His service. Use the gifts He has given you for His glory. You see, in the Song of Praise, He points out the people from Ephraim and Benjamin and Zebulun and Issachar and Naphtali, and they're celebrated because they volunteered. The fight started and they joined in. But look at what it says about some of the other tribes. Just look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 5. It says to the clans of Reuben, why did you sit among the sheepfolds listening to the playing of pipes for the flocks? So I think, why did you sit in your room with your headphones on? 
There was a great searching of heart among the clans of Reuben, but they did nothing. Gilead remained beyond the Jordan. Dan, why did you linger at the ships? Asher remained at the seashore and stayed in his harbours. You see, the people of Reuben and Gilead and Dan and Asher sat back while other people did the work. They sat back while their brothers gave their lives for them. They were saved. They were saved. But they did not share in the joy of knowing that they had served God. Sadly, lots of Christians today are saved, but they will not share in that joy of knowing that they served. That they used God's gifts the gifts God had given them for His glory. Do you know the thing I love most about this congregation? Is the way so many of you use your gifts in all sorts of ways, often unseen, to serve God. And remember, that pleases God. And we should praise God for you. Because that is what God wants you to do with this life. Serve Him. John Piper, in his great book, I've mentioned this book before. Maybe you remember I've talked about this before. It's called Don't Waste Your Life. I hold it up and think you can read it from there, but you know, it's called Don't Waste Your Life and he tells this story, I'll read it out, it's really sad, he says, I will tell you what a tragedy is, you're expecting him to talk about people dying or this sort of stuff, he says, no, I'll show you how to waste your life, consider this story from the February 1998 Reader's Digest, a couple took early retirement from their jobs in the northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51, now they live in Florida where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball and collect shells. Now, to our world, they go, that's great, you work hard enough early in life, you get to live for yourself for the last 30, 40 years. John Piper says, picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, God, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy. See, when we stand before the judgment seat of God on the last day, if you trust in Jesus, you are saved. So praise God. If you are someone who trusts in Jesus, you are saved. But please do not waste your life. Don't be like the people of Reuben and Gad and Asher who sat there and just said, ah, oh, well, I'm saved. Someone else will look after it. Use your life well. My prayer for every person here is that Jesus will say to us, well done good and faithful servant. Well done for the way you taught kids church when you could have stayed in bed. Well done for the way you, you led at snack youth when you could have been out with your friends on a Friday night. Well done for the way you used the gifts God had given you in all sorts of ways that no one ever saw and God says, but I see them. You see, my prayer is that every one of us here, Jesus will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, well done. When the leaders lead in Israel and in his church, when the people volunteer, we should praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Judges. We thank you for the example of Barak's faithfulness and in particular for the way it helps us. As all too often our faith is weak, all too often we stumble and doubt. And yet, Father, in the end, like Barak, Please help us to be people who stand firm and trust your promises. But Father, we also thank you that like Barak and Deborah before us, we can sing. We can declare your praises to one another and to the world. 
And we thank you that we know the wonderful victory you have won in Jesus, that we are forgiven for our sins. So help us be people who sing your praises. And finally, Father, help us to be people like the people Barak and Deborah praised God for, people who use the gifts you had given us to serve. And so, Father, we pray that we might use our lives well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.